The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. ...of this book of the Bible. So here we are again. You ready for it? All right, turn in your copy of God's Word to Exodus 19. It's at the front of your Bible. Uh, Genesis is that first book. Exodus is the second one. And we're going to chapter 19. And uh, maybe you're new with us and you're like, why chapter 19? Why not chapter 1? Well, this is actually part 2 of our series, God of Glory, uh, after we took a seven-month break. Now, I know many of you are new to redemption and uh, you've since made redemption your church home. And so uh, part 1, chapters 1 through 18, you can find online at our website and our podcast and uh, go and listen and catch up to those things because uh, part one was pretty awesome, wasn't it, church? You know, if, and as you go and read through those, uh, those, those chapters, you listen to the messages, you'll discover uh, and some significant moments in uh, uh, God's people, the Israelites. Starts with uh, their brutal slavery, It starts with their savage treatment at the hands of the Egyptians as they are are enslaved there after after a new pharaoh comes into town and injustice is everywhere. So much so that the murder of young Israelite boys is legalized, even mandated. It's an oppression and a hatred, uh, an injustice, maybe unlike anything we have ever seen in the history of humanity. You read those first few chapters and you begin to wonder, like, where is God in all of this? What what is he doing? And we are quickly reminded at the end of chapter 2 that God sees their plight. He hears their cries. He has remembered his covenant and he does indeed respond in a way that only he can do. And so this obscure boy named Moses is providentially rescued and ends up in the home in the household of Pharaoh. But after uh, growing up in that culture and growing up there, he is exiled and sent to the wilderness where he uh, marries and becomes a shepherd and one day really unsuspecting. In the wilderness of Sinai, he sees a burning bush and it is there that God reveals himself to to, uh, Moses as I am who I am. And commissions him to go to be the man, uh, the uh, unsuspecting man who would lead God's people out of this slavery. And so he, he sends him back as, as God's mouthpiece. And Moses goes uh, as a nobody and approaches Pharaoh, to who doesn't relent and who actually digs his heels in. And so God, in a great display of his power, unleashes his great and grievous judgments upon the entire land. But also in the midst of this, in the tenth and final judgment, God shows his guilt. He offers a way of escape through a substitutionary lamb that would just be sacrificed and its blood put over the doorpost of the house. And then and only then would the Lord pass by. And so the, the, the Israelites, God's people, are miraculously rescued and make their way into the wilderness, plundering the Egyptians, uh, uh, filling their pockets with the spoils of the Egyptians. And they come to this great body of water, the Red Sea. And Pharaoh comes to his senses as these two to three million people, his whole labor force, is leaving. And he musters his army to go and to bring them back. The Israelites are found between a rock and a hard place. The Red Sea before them and Pharaoh's army bearing down upon them. And what does God do? You know the story, right? 
He splits the sea so that God's people safely cross. And as the enemies plunge into that uh, split sea, God brings the water back down upon them and the people are delivered. And then as they are in the wilderness, they are a freed people. Everything is great. They respond with great joy and worship and everybody's getting along, aren't they? You know the story. What do the people do? They grumble and complain. They're hungry and thirsty. And God, again in his mercy, provides everything that they need. The people also, they all get along. There's no conflict. They know exactly what to do in every matter and don't need anybody to help tell them what to do, right? No. Moses, we're told, from morning to night is bombarded with the needs of the people weighing in. And so God raises up other godly leaders to help bear the burden. And so in that overview of chapters 1 through 18, these aren't just significant moments for the Israelites, are they? There's some significant lessons for us, all humanity, ever since then, as we look back and see the person of God, the power of God, and the promises of God to His people. And so what I've just given you there as we begin, really an overview of the first part, part one, which would have the theme or the banner of God's deliverance in 1 through 18. And now today we begin the second part, which would have the banner of presence. See, deliverance and presence, it tells the story of redemption of God taking us out of bondage, his people out of enslavement here to the Egyptians, we of our sin and into the presence of God. And so as we begin today, it really the story then does change. From here through the end, over the next several months, we have this overarching theme of God's glorious presence. The people of Israel are no longer in Egypt, but they're now in the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, and God is at work preparing these former slaves for a life, an entirely different way of life than they knew and anybody knew up until this point. And so really, if you're taking notes here at the heart of our chapter, which I'm going to read here in just a second, but write this, and prepares us to live for him. Let me say that again. The God of glory sets us free and prepares us to live for him. And so write that down and then look in your Bible here. I want to read chapter 19 for us and just set the whole scene before us and then we'll, uh, then we'll look closer at its significance. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1, says this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that my people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all round, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud of the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and not come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now this is God's word for God's people. It's a fascinating chapter of scripture, right? Fascinating narrative to just get our mind back into what's happening here. But let me ask you this question. As you're processing what we just read, and and, uh, we'll go through it here in just, just a bit more closely, but let me ask you this. What did you do to prepare yourself for worship this morning? Maybe you're a parent or you have a family. What, what did you do to prepare your family to worship today? Some of you are looking at me like, prepare? You're kidding me? Like, just be thankful I'm here that I have clothes on and my hair is not all askew, right? Just getting out the door, there's no preparation. Others of you, as I ask that question, you think, well, I put in several hours this week to be ready. I'm teaching in Redemption Kids, and so I was preparing the lesson and studying and, and, and working on the responsibilities that I have. I play an instrument or I'm singing, so I was preparing and practicing, and that's not what I'm getting at either in the question. I'm not asking about, uh, about the service and the things you put in. I'm really asking about your heart. Did you prepare this morning to meet with the Lord? And maybe this is a foreign concept to you, like meeting with the Lord, coming to church. Like, what, what is it? it was like church is somewhere that we go. Church is somewhere we get coffee. It's somewhere we serve. It's a place to meet with friends. It's a place where we listen to good music or, you know, we feel good about ourselves after we leave, at least for a few hours. But this idea of preparation to meet with God was a foreign concept, not just for us, but to the Israelites as well. All they knew was slavery in Egypt. 
All they knew to this point was the cultural customs of, of a life as a slave and the rhythms of the work and the work and the work and of the polytheistic religion that went around him and, 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 and maybe some bits of vestiges of their had set them free. He had set them free and what they needed then was a renewing of their mind. They, they needed as they came into the wilderness, as life for them was drastically changed, they needed to be taught how to act, how to behave in a way that honors the Lord. And most importantly, they needed to be taught how to worship, how to walk with God, how to work for God. And so, church, let's just get practical right away as we are in the maturity of free from our slavery to sin. Amen. And then we know exactly how to live and how to uh, decide and walk in ways that are wise uh, from there on out, don't we? He just like takes out our heart and like it's like a download, right? He takes out this memory card and puts in a new memory card. And we, from there on out, after the moment we're saved and regenerated, we got everything figured out, don't we? Seems to be, man, that'd be kind of nice. But the reality is we don't know everything right away, do we? Whether you were saved as a young child or in your teens or as an adult, we, prior to Christ, walked according to the ways of the world, influenced uh, primarily uh, by our sinful flesh and the sinful uh, influences around us. Our thoughts were unbiblical. Our behavior was sinful, for it is all we knew how to do. So when we came to Christ, we, need, uh, we needed a renewing of the mind, and we continually needed we, we needed to be taught how to act, how to behave, how to live for Christ. Most importantly, we needed to be taught how to worship, how to worship Christ, how to walk with Christ, how to uh, work for Christ. Maybe today you're here and, you, and all that is a foreign concept to you. You know maybe some things about Christ. I don't know what brought you in uh, through the doors or what's causing you to listen to this message, but right now you don't know Christ. And especially as you think about all the, the ways to live and what to do, it all just seems like a foreign concept to you. But what you have seen is that apart from God, you can't do anything. Freedom from the weight and the guilt and the conviction of a life of sin call you today to respond to the work of the Spirit in your life. Leave behind your way of sin. Trust Christ even now. And you know what's awesome? It's no accident that God brought you through these doors, that He's connected you to our church because there are people all around you who will graciously and patiently teach you how to live and how to make sense of how to follow Christ. Maybe there's others in here this morning that you do know Christ, but, but man, you're just discouraged. You're discouraged because you make progress and you think like, oh, well, I, I've, I've, I've got this sin in my life and now I've made, I've taken a few steps before it. I put that behind me. But now this week, this person or this circumstance revealed yet another layer of sin, another uh, means of unbiblical thinking or something. And you're just discouraged. Don't give up. Don't give up. It's God's grace to you to bring these things up that he doesn't just overwhelm you all at once. He is patiently preparing you and maturing you and refining you. It's the journey really that we're all on. God's preparing us for his presence in a, in a real sense for his presence in eternity. But whether you've been following the Lord for a few days, a few weeks, or a few decades, the truth is we're all in 
process. It's all our own process. It's true for us. It's, it's true for the Israelites. It's having his people to live for him. And so here's really the first step. If that's the theme, God sets us free and, and prepares us to live for him. Here's the first step. We must recall what it took. Recall what it took. Look, uh, come back to your Bible here now in, in uh, chapter 19, verse 1. And he talks about these new moons, but really what he's getting at, it's been three months since the Exodus. Three months since that night of Passover, since they left. And as we noted earlier, a lot has happened, hasn't it? We'll talk about some significant months here. That has been the truth in their life. And now we're told they're in the wilderness of Sinai. Maybe your Bible says the desert of Sinai. And don't, when you read desert, don't think of like sand and trudging through sand. No, think more like the Texas hill country. You know, hilly, rocky, not a lot of topsoil, um, and really any sort of green vegetation has like thorns and thistles and wants to cut you up. That's the kind of wilderness that they are in. And so they come to this mountain, right? They set out from Rephidim and they come to uh, the mountain there where they camp Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. It's two different names for the same mountain. And here's the cool part. It's the same mountain that uh, God revealed himself to Moses there in the burning bush. It's the same place where God made himself known, his, his, who he was, his name and his plan for their deliverance. And back in chapter 3, God promised that, he, that they would come back to it. It was proof, it was proof, church, that God is who he says he is and was powerful enough to carry out his plan. I want you to see this with me. So in your Bible, go back a few pages to Exodus chapter 3. Okay? Be just a few pages back. Flip back there. All y'all with your digital Bible, just, you know, hit the back arrow and you'll make your way there. Chapter 3 here, Moses begins. He's keeping the flock. He was a shepherd. He had sheep. And so they would take him out into the wilderness. And they're there at Horeb, the mountain of God. And God reveals himself in the, in the bush, as I've said. And so skip down to verse 10. He, Exodus 3, verse 10. God is speaking and he says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, this is Moses commissioning. He's saying, I'm sending you to take my people out. I don't have any standing. I, I, who am I to confront the most powerful uh, political person in the whole world in those days? Who am I to go? In verse 12 here, God responds. He says, but I will be with you. Aren't those the greatest words that we could ever hear? It says, hey, you're right. You are nobody but I'm somebody. I'm somebody. I'm going with you. And he says, and this is so gracious of God. He says, this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Where are they in this? I just, I said it a bit ago, Mount Sinai. Okay. Now fast forward all those events that we know happened, the judgments of God, Red Sea, everything. Go back to Exodus 19. Where are they, church? Church, is God, uh, is God who he says he is? He is. You need no more proof of the person and power and, and promises of God. God has made himself known. Church, you don't need any more signs, any more power. God is who he says he is. He's brought his people out, and now they are there just as he said they would uh, come back to you. And now they are. And so God speaks to Moses. He says in verse 4, he says, you've witnessed all these things. 
You know, recall what it took to get you out. Go back to Exodus 19, verse 4. He's, this is God speaking. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. It's only three months. A lot has happened. Do you think they had some flashbacks to all those judgments? They knew. They were personally witnessed the great and grievous judgments that took place to set them free. But also, he goes on, he said, you've personally witnessed how I've protected you through the Passover, through the Red Sea, through uh, your hunger and your thirst here. He says, you know how I, I brought you to myself or how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So he uses this cool example of, of eagles, a mother eagle. When she's teaching her, her young eagles to fly, she flies up underneath them and they fly over top in case they like, you know, falter as they're trying to get their wings. They, she is underneath them, protecting them. And so as they are set free, God is saying, I was with you. I was leading you along the way. I had you the whole entire time. In other words, as God brings them to the mountain, he is calling them to recall what it took to not forget his incomparable power and protection every step of the way. Church, I've said this often and because we are so forgetful, right? We, we, we are so forgetful. In the phase of our life, months go by, weeks go by, and we forget what God just did yesterday. You know, we're this on this side of COVID restrictions and mandates and things, and now we're facing new challenges, and we forget how God preserved us and protected us all throughout it. We forget the promise of God to us to, to, to go with us wherever we go. We forget the great commission that he's given to us as a church. He says, go make disciples. And as we do, what does he promise in the great commission? Matthew 28, verse 20. I will be with you. What does that sound like? See, God isn't going to commission us and send us to go somewhere that he himself isn't already going. He goes with us, and this is the strength. This is where we get our courage as we face new challenges. And so as we view our life in the lens of the Great Commission to make disciples... We recall what it took. We recall God's promises. We recall his faithfulness every step of the way. But man, we forget, don't we? We forget. We're so forgetful. Spiritually speaking, we fall into this trap even in our own maturity, in our own growth. We know none of us would say, well, I saved ourselves. But man, as we grow a little bit and we use our gifts and we get a little farther away from you know, the moment of crisis or that initial conviction of our sin and we begin to think things like, well, I made a choice. I got my life in order. I did it. We let that creep then into how we grow spiritually as we're showing, I just need to, I need to get my life in order. Well, church, make no mistake, God did the work to deliver the Israelites, didn't he? And an impossible, against possible odds of an impossible situation. And this is just a picture of our state apart from Christ. It's impossible for us to save ourselves. God did the work to rescue them. They just responded. They, they walked it out saying, okay, God, we'll, tr- we'll trust you. Even in all their imperfections, even in their grumbling, even in their, even in their, their conflict and their arguing. But church, let us make no mistake. It is Christ who saved us. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we were supposed to live. He chose us despite us. He intercedes for us. Now he sent the Spirit to teach us and to convict us, to live in us, and he will bring us home. 
Recall what it took to save you. Recall what it, takes to, what it took to uh, enable us to lead, live this life right now. Keep the gospel before you. But this doesn't mean that we're just robots in this world, does it? Does it mean that we, just, we don't do anything, but that we have no part? Because here's the second step, and here's really where the, where the passage goes. Not only do we recall what it took, but we resolve to live rightly. We, we resolve to live rightly. The Israelites are here at Mount Sinai, right? And, and God is, he's, he's making himself known. He, he is reminding them of what happened. And now what's happening is really profound because God is making a covenant with his people. Here's the beginnings of what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. It's like a treaty, an agreement, a, a, a compact between God and the Israelites, and what are we to make of these verses here in verses 5 to 9 and really the Mosaic Covenant in general with Israel? Covenant called for obedience. And get this, its purpose was to set Israel apart as a special people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's what we read about in verses 5 and 6. Picking up the quote, it says, In the following chapters, which we'll come to the next few weeks, 20 to 23, the stipulations of the covenant are spelled out in great detail, and much more is added in the subsequent books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, this covenant was intended as a fulfillment of the promises to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. But later in Exodus, which we'll get to in chapter 32, it became clear that Israel could not obey this covenant. Even while they were still at the base of Mount Sinai, thus Israel broke this covenant and any hope for the future would have to rest in the establishment of a new covenant, end quote. And so we're at a time here. This is, this is phenomenal. God is making some promises. He's making a covenant. In the beginning, if we go back to verse 5 over here, he says, if you will do really two things, obey my voice, all right, you see them? And keep my covenant. And at first glance, we read this covenant, we read this promise, and we see those two things. It's like, that seems pretty easy, right? Just do this two things. You obey my voice, you keep my covenant. That's a piece of cake, right? Especially because the payoff or the blessing is, is, is so awesome, isn't it? He says, if you do this, look, at, look with me, verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. God owns everything, doesn't he? And he's saying, if, if you do this, you will be the nation that I love the most. And by doing so, you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be set apart in your leadership and as a nation from all the other peoples of the earth. Now, this is pretty awesome, isn't it? payoff is, is huge. And so it's no wonder when Moses, he takes these words, then he goes to tell the elders what God had covenanted to do and jump down to verse eight and the people hear it and all the peoples, they resolve to live rightly, right? It says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, some of us in here know the rest of the story, don't we? That represented his uh, physical presence there uh, among them. And so this covenant, though it may seem easy, though it may uh, seem to have a massive payoff, it's not so easy, is it? And what, what is a covenant like this? What, is this? what does it sound like in your own life? It sounds like a covenant of marriage, doesn't it? 
sounds like what we, what we, what we commit to do in, in marriage, a man and a woman are interested in one another. And then they covenant to, to, to live together, to uh, love and to respect one another. And the payoff is fantastic in marriage, isn't it? The payoff is fantastic in marriage, isn't it? Right? Right? It's fantastic. An exclusive love chosen from uh, among all others. Amongst all the women who are on the face of this earth, I have chosen Aaron to set my love upon, and she, for some reason known only to the Lord and her, chose me. And there's a commitment, there's a resolve to keep that covenant uh, with one another. That's why marriage ceremonies often include those vows and declarations of I do, or uh, maybe more appropriately, I will. That's really reminiscent of verse 8 here. Uh, All that we've spoken, all these declarations, we will do. But without that commitment, without that resolve, a marriage won't go anywhere. It won't thrive, it may not even survive. There's a commitment to the Lord first in marriage. All that the Lord has spoken, all that the Lord has designed this marriage to be, we, we commit. He's the, God is the one presiding over the ceremony. God is the one over our marriages. And so our commitment is to the Lord first and then to our spouse for their good, their holiness. Not for us. We don't come into marriage. like, uh, for, Well, maybe we do. It's part of the problem. We come in thinking that this is all for my happiness. I can't, uh, this, is, this is all going to be great. But without the commitment and the resolve to live in a way and our marriage to be uh, a means of our sanctification for the glory of God, it won't go anywhere. And so we must resolve in our marriages to do what is right, to have a marriage that is according to God's will and lived out according to God's ways. But this commitment, this resolve, this covenant, doesn't it sound really familiar also? Uh, They're similar to our growth in Christ as Christians. And there's some things, maybe as you know your Bible, as you were listening to the the covenant and the language here that is reiterated in, in in our New Testament for believers under the new covenant. We who are Christ's treasured possessions. We who is, it says in Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify uh, for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Isn't that incredible? Peter expounds on this in 1 Peter 2. First, he lays out the, 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 the resolve, what it took, to, the, and, or what we're to do is we're to put away all malice, we're to put away all sin, we're to resolve to live rightly. And he reminds us also in that chapter to, of what it took of Christ's sacrificial death, of Christ's uh, uh, redeeming love and His grace towards us. And then He shows us the blessing in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. I want to just read it for us because the language here is, is straight out of Exodus 19. Listen to just this. This is Peter speaking to believers. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There it is again, that grand redemption theme of God calling us out, of delivering us from sin and bringing us into his presence or into this, his marvelous light. Verse 10 says, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
this glorious church? The, the, the Exodus 19 isn't just some dusty old historic uh, fiction of a long time ago, but it's the beginnings of God's revelation to his people, to us, preparing them and us to really live for him taking them out of what they once knew and now bringing them into his presence and calling them to a resolve to live differently, not like their old way of life, not like everybody else is living, but to live in a way that God has designed. And so let me just ask this this morning. Are you, have you resolved in your heart and mind to live as the Lord has commanded you? Pray so. Have you resolved in your heart and mind to live as the Lord has commanded, even if it's unpopular? Even if it becomes illegal? Even if it means song, we will reach the end by grace and grace alone. It's the same for the Israelites, it's the same here. As God is preparing us to live for him, we got to recall what it took. We must uh, resolve to live rightly. And part of that resolve really is here the third point. We must resist what is wrong. We must resist what is wrong. Join me in verse 10 here. It's, uh, the, the Israelites, they just pledged to live right for the Lord. And then he quickly prepares them to come into his presence, which meant not doing some things and also doing several things, right? We, we must resist not, uh, doing things. So he gives them this whole list here in, in these verses, 10 through 15, of what they're not to do and what they are uh, to do. And it would take several days, wouldn't it? Uh, to wash their clothes. And verse 10, they couldn't approach the mountain. They couldn't even touch the edge. They, they couldn't come close, a human nor animal, lest they could be killed. Like, this is serious, right? You know, verse 13, he says, No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. That kind of takes us back a little bit, right? This is serious business here. They must wait three days until they hear a trumpet. Then at the very end there, verse 15, he says the people, they got to be ready for the third day, and there's to be no marital intimacy. He says, do not go near a woman. Don't mistake this. He's not saying, like, girls have cooties, so stay away from them for three days. Despite popular elementary belief, girls do not have cooties. Nod your heads with me, church. Yeah, he does. He does. God cares about our entire person, how we portray ourselves outwardly, how we spend our time, and how we act in the most intimate of ways. And so don't read these. Don't, don't, don't make this mistake here. It's not necessarily about modesty or dress codes. It's not about, uh, you know, living a life according to a conservative agenda or a progressive uh, agenda. It's not that. It's much bigger than all of that. So God has set his people apart in every area. It's a life of Christ is living differently than according to the world's standards. God, he, he wants us to resist all the material, sinful, cultural expressions of, uh, of life from the outer appearance to the inner man, to what we do with our time. Those things that are constantly changing over time in different nations, in different era, amongst different people, that is not our standard, but the Lord has set our standard for how we live. And so when God sets us free, when he brings us out of our bondage, out of uh, walking according to the ways of the world, when he frees us from all that, he doesn't just free us to then go and live however we want. 
That's a part of the problem, right? It's not like, hey, you, now you're set free from your sin. You're no longer on the hook for it. You're not going to hell anymore. No, live a life however you want. Praise God, he doesn't do that. But he teaches us a better way to live. See, when it comes to living for Christ, here's, here's something. You can, these won't be on the screen, but you can take notes. See, we must be intentional about our outward holiness of how we portray ourselves. Let's, let, don't, don't, don't necessarily think of this just in, in means of clothes. When he's calling them to wash their garments, there's a spiritual lesson here. We're to resist on one hand that, you know, the picture-perfect outfit of living our life and keeping our house and, and, and the way we talk about ourselves as if we have everything figured out. Right? Everything's a smile. There's never a problem. We never, like, our temper never gets up. We never, like, everything is great in my life and in my house. No. But we also need to resist the opposite extreme of, man, my life is a mess and don't tell me anything about it. And, uh, yeah, here's all my junk, but don't, don't, don't speak into it. You just accept me for who I am. We need to resist that outfit as well. See, the first lacks vulnerability and the second lacks teachability. And see, when it comes to uh, our, our walking and living rightly for the Lord, we need to resist both of those temptations and come vulnerably, come teachably before the Lord. Instead of recognize we don't have it all figured out. We're all in process. We're all, we're all trying to take steps in our walk with the Lord and at different places in our sanctification. God is concerned about what's going on in our life, and he brings it to the forefront. Second is we think it was like, why did they have to wait three mountain, um, days? Why couldn't they come to the mountain? Because here's the thing. We must be intentional about how we use our time, what we do, where we go all the time. We are to be mindful and deliberate. Uh, we're told in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 to look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You know, in my small group, we have some ongoing accountability of what we call GWATs. You heard about those? Have you heard about GWATs? Do you write this down? It's an acronym that we've come up with, Giant Wastes of Time. GWATs, Giant Wastes of Time. Now, these aren't things that are necessarily bad or always sinful, but they are those things that we occupy our time with that distracts us from doing what we know we should, growing in our holiness of living a life that is set apart. And oftentimes, GWATs involve screens of every form and fashion, from the littlest ones we carry in our pocket to the giant ones mounted on our walls. There's all kinds of things. But man, we must be deliberate especially when it comes to worship. We must be intentional when it comes to walking into the presence of God. Now note this, the Israelites here, they were preparing to meet with the manifest presence of God, something that was new for them as a, as a people. And when I say the manifest presence of God, this is a little different than the omnipresence of God. Right? Here's a little theology lesson for you. Omnipresence is God, the, the reality, the truth, the doctrine that God is everywhere all the time. He's here, he's in other churches in the city and in the state. He is at work, uh, or he is present uh, wherever we go. That's awesome, isn't it? It can also be terrifying if we're chasing sin. 
But God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But there's, uh, in, in our Bible, there's this idea here. There's a doctrine of the manifest presence of God where God is specifically, actively at work transforming lives. It's why as we gather for worship on Sundays, we uh, do the things that God has said, I will show up. I will change your mind. I will change your heart. I will transform you another degree of glory as you sing to me about me, as you pray uh, to me, as you open up my word, as you give uh, to me, as you, as, as you share the good news of Jesus Christ. It is there that God is working. And so God here is teaching the, the people that you don't just go traipsing into God's presence. This is like we barge into uh, somebody's office. Church, this is holy, awesome, mighty, majestic God. There's no just showing up for the show. There's the preparation that began days before. It was on their mind. There was a building excitement for a meeting with God. An excitement that's very similar to when you go on vacation, Right? But on vacation, a big trip that was coming up, and, and for days prior to it, it's one of the things, it's all you can think about. You're distracted at work because you're just thinking about the details. You can't wait to get on the beach or in the mountains or you know, go do whatever activities you have lined up. And, and so you spend your time, you're changing your clothes, washing your clothes, you're packing your bags, you're getting all ready uh, because you can't wait. Church, is this how you prepare? For Sunday worship, of coming and meeting with God Almighty. We're just showing up for the show and a good cup of coffee and to have some fun with the friends. At least to get a 75 minute break for your kids. See, prep for church, prep for worship, a meeting with God starts long before 30 minutes uh, to, to the service time beginning. It starts with how we plan our weekend. It starts with what we do on our Saturday night of our Sunday morning and when we get up so that we're not just dragging in to the presence of God, but we come eager and expectant, ready to meet with God, to grow in faith, to serve the saints, to encourage uh, somebody who is here. See, that's what church is about. Church is about God and for God. Then we get the blessing. We get the payoff but it's because we come to meet with the Lord and so we must be intentional about how we use our time but there's a last bit here last bit we must be intentional about our sexual holiness as well it must be there's not much here in verse 15 it's just a little phrase there's a whole lot more coming and as the case laws and the mosaic law uh, will come in later chapters and later books but there is a connection here don't miss this He's just referencing it here, but there is a connection between our spirituality and our sexuality. You can't just be engaging in sexual sin and think that it won't affect our worship. For church, it is one of the most destructive of all sins. We think that it can lead to happiness, but man, let me just tell you right now, it always leads to ruin. Ruin in your life, ruin your relationships, ruin in your job, ruin in your, in your marriage. And it will rob your joy, no matter how temporary the pleasure, the fun might be. And so let me just offer some hope. As, we, as we're here, we're talking about ourselves, maybe, maybe you find yourself trapped in it or confused about it. Like, what, 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 are, what, are, what are the boundaries? What are we supposed to do? 
Let me just by begin to say, Jesus offers a way better way. A way, way better way. If you're trapped, there is escape. There is forgiveness. Bring it to the light. Don't wait. Bring it to the light today. Confess it. There are people around you that would love to talk with you and walk with you as you seek the freedom in this regard. If you're confused about it, you know, they, they're just like, well, what, what's soft limits? What can I do? What, what not? Well, let me tell you, the Bible is, there is construction and there is fun, okay? There is fun in sexual holiness. Don't buy into all the cultural lies. Don't buy into the, the social narrative. The one who created you knows what is best for you. He knows his ways are much better his people are here. I'd be happy to meet with you as would our elders or small group leaders. Others would be happy to meet and talk and counsel through these issues if there is confusion about it. But praise God that he's made himself known, right? Praise God that he has made himself known and that he's made his ways known to us. He's not distant. He's not silent on these things like every other so-called deity or other religions of the world. He's made himself known and he has done so through a mediator. A mediator, then this, and this is really brings us to the last point, and the remainder of the verses here is that we are to rejoice in the mediator. As God sets us free, as he prepares us to live for him, we can rejoice in a mediator. You know, I said just a moment ago that we don't just traipse into the presence of God, do we? Don't just barge into the, the office, nor do we through our own like intellectual powers create our own version of God, but rather the one true and living God has made himself known to us and someone then stands in the gap between God and man. And so in our passage here in Exodus 19, for the Israelites, it was Moses. He was the only one that was allowed to go up on the mountain. Later, he would take Aaron and the priests would be the, the, the mediator. But the people all stood on the base of the mountain. The Lord then shows up. He's veiled by uh, clouds and thunders and they were not able to come until the trumpet. And there, as they approach, even at the base of the, the mountain, there's a warning that is issued. Sum it up. It basically says, you can't come near me. And if you do, I will unleash on you. I will break out against you. It's like, whoa, man. Whoa. And I'm told that the people tremble. See, this is the fear of the Lord. I think we need that in our own life, don't we? We need to fear God. We need to fear His ways. And apart from his grace and mercy, he, he would unleash. The constant, like, man, is God going to strike me down now? Am I going somewhere I'm not supposed to? Am I holy enough? Have I got myself all good and ready? No, we rejoice because God has made himself known through a mediator, through the man Christ Jesus. The one who stands in the gap for us. We have a great high priest who was himself the sacrifice. Who was himself the, the mediator. Who was himself the priest and the sacrifice. We're told in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there was one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 
The writer of Hebrews uh, expounds upon this in great detail, but here's a few verses from Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. He says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Who's he talking about? Jesus, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus stood in the gap for you. Jesus made himself known to us so that we could know God and be declared right in God and live for God. Jesus prepares the way for us to be and live in the presence of God both now and always. So church, we rejoice that Christ is our mediator, don't we? We rejoice that he has prepared us to live for him, that his sacrifice set us free from sin and delivered us to God, where we stand now spiritually speaking in our justified state in his presence. But it is also this truth that week in and week out brings us into his presence to worship corporately each week as we walk it out in our life. And it is this truth that we put before us, rejoicing in the mediator as God prepares us to live for him. And it's a truth that we rejoice in even as we specifically take communion. Hopefully you got the, uh, the elements as you came in and we're going to turn our own life that we would resolve to live rightly. And even as we come before, as we recall what it took, that God would, would show us and we would resist the uh, wrong in our life and that we would rejoice in and celebrate that we have a mediator in what Christ has done. And all of that is wrapped up in God's perfect wisdom when he gave us this ordinance. Not these little cups here, but remembrance of Christ's death and burial and his resurrection until he comes. Isn't this good news, church? Isn't this phenomenal as we see the wisdom and kindness of God? Doesn't this lead us to rejoice in Christ? And so what I want to do, why don't we just pray to prepare our hearts towards this. I'm going to call the worship team up, and then we will take uh, communion together in just a moment. Bow your heads and let's pray.